Well, it is amazing love, isn't it, that Christ has for us and how good it is, I think, for us to gather here amid what is certainly the beginning of a very crazy season of the year and to make sure that our minds and our hearts are focused on the reason why all of this happens, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And hopefully as we've had communion this morning and worshiped him, that our spirit of being focused on him would continue now as we uh, begin a message. And it is my privilege to be able to do that this morning. My name is Brad Lagos. I'm the pastor of small groups here at Bethel. And uh, obviously not Pastor Steve. He is gone and on vacation. And so we're going to be diverting from our First Corinthians series here just for this week. And Pastor Steve is going to be back continuing that for us next week. Uh, but for this week, we're going to be studying a different text, another text written by the Apostle Paul, and this time in the book of Philippians. So you might want to begin and turn to that that book there, book of Philippians. And if you remember last week's message, Pastor Steve challenged us not to rest our faith on any fallible human thing, but instead to rest it on Christ, that the Lord would be the foundation of our faith, not another person or an experience, but the only thing that can never disappoint Jesus Christ himself. And that's a pretty important distinction, don't you think? It is. And today we're going to uh, open another passage that I think makes a similar distinction, provides a contrast that is both powerful and poignant. It's the contrast between the value of a religious resume and that of true righteousness that can be found in Christ. Now, resumes are important, aren't they? Very important. You need a good resume to get a great job, and they help us advance our career, and they build credibility for us, and help us to move on to doing bigger and better things, and I would be willing to bet that many of us here at some point have assembled a formal resume, written that down, right? We have all have those kind of documents. We also have, I think, many sorts of informal, more unwritten resumes that we carry with us as well. And to illustrate this, let's just talk about this past Thanksgiving week. I hope all of you have great, wonderful, vivid memories of what was an amazing meal. Of oven roasted turkey, probably, and rich stuffing, and gravy made from scratch. Probably an onslaught of just delectable sides. I bet your family has their own personal favorites, don't they? And I typically spend uh, Thanksgiving, as I did this year, with my wife's family. And usually her mother and her aunt co-conspire to produce Thanksgiving dinner. And of course, it's all great. It's all wonderful. And over the years, they both created their own resume of specialties. One of those is the candied sweet potatoes that my wife's aunt makes. She is famous for her Thanksgiving sweet potatoes. Probably in part because they've got like a thousand calories per cubic inch. You know, take a bite, it's like a Big Mac right there. And somehow in the production of these things, like the potato ingredient completely disappears and it's replaced with nothing but solid brown sugar and butter. Maybe you have similar recipes. And every year there is the expectation, the reminder, hey, hey, you're going to make those sweet potatoes, right? Because you only get it once a year because that's all your body can afford. And let me tell you, if she didn't make those things, there would be a downright mutiny. Thanksgiving would not be complete. My wife's Anne has developed quite a reputation for her famous candied sweet potatoes. And that's why we asked her to make Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving meal because she has the resume and experience to do it. And I wonder who in your family is given that responsibility. I'd be willing to bet you probably don't look around and say, hey, you know, Joe, you, you've never cooked before. How about you give Thanksgiving a shot this year? Or turn to your spouse and say, hey, let's have our teenage kids go ahead and make Thanksgiving dinner for us this year. You probably don't operate that way because you don't trust Thanksgiving dinner to a cooking novice, do you? There's just too much riding on it. 
And it's usually people with the experience and the know-how and the resume that we ask to build this once-a-year culinary experience for us. We have all built for ourselves reputations that are defined by our list of experiences. And these resumes of our accomplishments, they continue to grow. It's true for the things we make in the kitchen, for the things we do in the workplace, things we learn in school, what we do in the church. And what Paul is going to do in our passage here this morning is talk about some of our religious resumes, our reputations, and he's going to put them in a bit of perspective for us. And so let's all turn to Philippians chapter 3. So I'll get there. Hopefully I'll hear some rustling of pages. God's people excited to get into his book this morning. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. And we're just going to begin really at verse 1 here. Let me read that. Begins, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Just going to stop there. Paul begins with an exhortation to rejoice. And this command to rejoice will make much more sense as we continue to dig into chapter 3 here. Because as we will soon see, for the Christian, there is much to rejoice about. And following this little command to rejoice, the NIV reads, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Paul's doing here is he's giving a little bit of a disclaimer. He's saying, hey, you know what? Uh, What I'm about to say here is nothing new. I've told you this before. You've heard this already. I've written to you about this. I'm writing to you about the same things again. And you know why I'm doing it? Because I want you to have a reminder of these things so that it is a safeguard for you. In other words, Paul's saying, you need me to remind you of these things so so that you don't gradually lose sight of this truth. And I think Paul's comment here is an important lesson for us all. Many of us here have been in church for many, many years, and we've often heard what seems like the same message being proclaimed over and over again. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think my heart can become a little bit sermon-proof. So that when a pastor stands up here and teaches about something I already know or says something I've heard a thousand times before, I sometimes mentally check out and my heart disengages from the truth being proclaimed. Even it's true sometimes with communion. Is that true for you sometimes? Maybe. And friends, it's a tragedy when that happens. When we become so accustomed to the gospel that its message seems commonplace and routine, the gospel is anything but ordinary. It is extraordinary. It is utterly amazing. And it should be the source of endless rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in it. Paul would say, And Paul's point here is that sometimes we need to be reminded of things we already know. And so the overall content of of this message here this morning may not be anything substantially new to you. But it's true that we need to hear again and again and again so we can rejoice in that truth again. So we can be reminded of it so that our minds are protected and kept safe from being led astray by the world's values. The things we see in our culture. So after this little disclaimer, Paul Paul now begins to dive into the heart of his message in verse 2. And he goes on and he says, Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Our text here continues with Paul warning believers about some people he obviously doesn't think too kindly about. He calls them dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. These are not kind words, are they? Before I 
try to dig into this and explain this a little further, I think it'd be helpful to lay a little background. Maybe the best way to do that is by means of an illustration. Now, I have to imagine that most of us here do have jobs or have had jobs at some point in our life, correct? And the question must be asked, how, how in your job, you know, what is, what is truly most important to your employer? Answer, well, it's how well you do the things you're hired to do, your job, right? And what your employer, you know, really cares most about is one thing, and that is your performance. I mean, when was the last time you sat down for a review with your employer? And your employer says something like, you know, Jill, hey, hey, you smile so nice. In fact, every day I just look at you, you're just smiling so big. You do such a good job smiling at work. I tell you what, you know, here's a nice raise because you, you just smile so good. Or, or, hey, Jack, you know, Jack, you're so nice. I just like you so much. You're so friendly and upbeat. You're so nice. Tell you what, take some extra time off because you are just so nice. Ever had an experience like that? Probably not. That's not how most employers evaluate their workers, is it? When it all comes down to what really matters to our employers is how well we are at our jobs, our performance. And the Jewish people typically had the same perspective on God. They thought that what really mattered to God was people's religious performance. That's what really mattered. So it was how well one kept the Ten Commandments or the various festivals or dietary laws, the traditions of people and society. And this is why you had a group called the Pharisees emerge who were so obsessed with religious performance. Now, wonderfully, by God's plan, some of these Pharisees became Christians. But these converted Jewish Pharisees actually had a hard time, many of them, fully embracing the gospel. And they became known as a group called the Judaizers. What they would do is they would travel about and go into newly established Gentile churches. And they would teach. And what they would teach there is that Christians ought to be very careful to keep all the details of the Old Testament law. So they would advocate for a strict adherence to all the Jewish festivals and obligations and rituals. They were particularly concerned about circumcision. This wasn't actually, I don't think, very good news to many because most male Gentiles were not yet circumcised. Yet these uh, Christian Pharisees were going into churches saying, Hey, Christian, you want to please God? Got to get circumcised. And I can't imagine that was a very popular message with the adult Christian population, male Christian population, do you? And Paul, because of this, and many reasons, decided to take these people on. And it's these people that Paul describes in verse 2. These are the one he calls dogs, evil men, mutilators of the flesh. He is very harsh in referring to them because Paul believed that what these people taught was total heresy. You see, the Judaizers found confidence for their salvation by looking to their own fleshly adherence to the law, by building a great religious resume. And they thought that by doing that, God would look down at them and be like, whoa, whoa, man, I am like so impressed with you. And they looked to find confidence in their salvation by the things that they did. Paul decided to set himself apart from these people, and he does so in verse 3. Look at that. He says, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here Paul says, you know those Judaizers? Their confidence is in their flesh, in their works, in their religious performance. But we, true Christians, our confidence is not in our religious resume. It's in something altogether different. We put no confidence in the flesh, which should cause us to wonder then, what is our confidence in? 
Paul's going to answer that in just a moment, but first he actually wants to make another point by talking about his own religious performance. See, Paul is in an incredible position to attack those who would trust in their performance because if anyone was justified in doing so, it was Paul. And in verses 4 through 6, he goes on to list off his own religious resume. Let's look at that. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And do you see what Paul is doing here? He's bragging about his own fleshly accomplishments. He's saying, you know what? If anyone has reason to trust in their performance, it's me. And you want to see religious performance? Look no further. Check this out, baby. You think you got it going on? Look at my religious resume. And did Paul ever have reason to brag? He was a pure-blooded Israelite, born into a Jewish family, circumcised in infancy. From day one, Paul was one of God's chosen people. And he had the accomplishments of a Pharisee. You know, Paul probably had the entire Old Testament memorized. Memorized. The entire Old Testament. As a Pharisee, Paul prided himself in keeping every bit of the law. Every tradition he kept. Every resume-building deed he did. And this is best summed up in the final phrase of verse 6. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So here's Paul's point. He never screwed up. He never missed a beat. And if God were to size everybody up, Paul's resume would rise right to the top of the stack. Because if anyone had reason to trust in his religious performance, it was Paul. But Paul goes on to tell us what he thinks of his performance now in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Three times, Paul says that the things on his spiritual resume, they're loss, ultimately a loss. And the imagery here shows that Paul has essentially discarded these things. They have been thrown out the window. They are a total loss to him. Their value has been reduced to almost nothing. And Paul is so emphatic about this point that he actually gets a little bit vulgar in this passage. And he uses a somewhat offensive word to really make his point. It's a word that when the Philippian church would have heard this, read this, they would have been like, what? What did, what did Paul just say? Did Paul just, just say what I, I think he said? It's a word that has a real edge to it, a bit of a bite. It's not a curse word. It's not like a four-letter word you can't see on TV, but it does, it's a word that kind of walks the line a bit. It's the word that most English translations uh, translate as rubbish. That word is really just too nice. The Greek word here is much harsher than that. The King James actually approaches it when it says, I consider them all but dung. It's really a, the image of a pile of excrement, of feces, muck, Garbage. Think of the worst episode you've ever seen of Dirty Jobs. There you go. It's the picture of absolute, total filth. Paul is saying all that stuff, all this religious performance, you know what? It's excrement. It's, it's feces. It's dung. It's rubbish. It's filth. And his resume has become a type of foul-smelling stuff. 
street garbage and it's fit only for dogs because it stinks. It's rotten. It's repulsive compared to something else. So what does Paul really value? Verse 8, he gives us his answer. Let's look at that again. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says here that his performance is filth compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's what really matters. Four times Paul here in this passage speaks of his relationship with Christ. In verse 8, he talks about uh, knowing Christ. And at the end of verse 8, he says, I want to gain Christ. You look at verse 9, he says, you know, I want to be found in him. In verse 10, he says, I want to know him. This is clearly the language of relationships. And Paul is saying that it's his relationship with Jesus Christ that gives him great spiritual confidence. Not the religious works he has done. Not the church performance he has achieved And the confidence that Paul has gained in Christ is so great, it is so powerful, that the confidence he used to receive from his religious resume, it utterly pales in comparison. We all can relate to this, I think. For example, I think, I bet that there are many things in your life that you could try and accomplish on your own, but much rather delegate to a professional. Maybe that's fixing, repairing something around the home getting medical treatment or diagnosing an illness, doing your taxes. A great example for me would probably be trying to fix my car. Truth be told, I can get a little lost underneath the hood. And uh, I can open up and say, there's the engine. And I think that's a flat tire. And I know how to fill up a little bit of fluid, but that's pretty much about it. I can do very little car repair or maintenance stuff. I have very little confidence in my own ability to fix the mechanical problems I might have. And so when such problems arise, I know I need some help. Because truth be told, even if I knew how to fix the problem, I actually don't have the tools needed to do so. And I'm very limited in my own ability to repair my cars. And I have no real confidence in doing so. And so I need somebody who's better, who's more equipped to handle car problems than I am. And Paul's point here is that his efforts to provide spiritual confidence for himself, they've become a total loss. So he's gone to a professional to help him with his dilemma, a spiritual professional. Someone who is actually able to solve his spiritual problem for him. And that person is Jesus Christ. And Jesus' ability to give spiritual confidence is so much greater than any efforts we could ever do on our own because Jesus Christ is better. He is so much better. And the rest of this passage lays out four reasons why Jesus Christ himself gives better confidence in our spiritual well-being. Four reasons. The first is this. The righteousness we receive in him is better. Righteousness is better. Look at verse 9 says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. By righteousness, what Paul means here is right standing with God. What he's saying is that because of his faith in Christ, Paul has been restored into a right relationship with God and the division uh, that sin has caused between him and the Lord has been done away with because Paul has now received Christ's righteousness. And here is something to rejoice in. 
That by having faith in Christ, I am granted right standing with God. And that this right standing is something far better than anything I could ever achieve on my own. Because I will always fall short. My abilities and my accomplishments are never enough to give me full spiritual confidence. I'm too fallen. Too imperfect. I can never be good enough. Frankly, I don't have the right tools to get it done. My best efforts, my most victorious days will always have some degree of failure. But in Christ, I receive a righteousness that is not my own. So my salvation is not determined by my adherence to the law, but whether I have true faith in Jesus Christ. So real righteousness comes not through religious performance, but through a person. From knowing and believing the one who is truly righteous. And then he is gracious. And he extends that righteousness to me. What good news this is. What freedom this is. To know that our salvation does not depend on our resume. But our relationship with him. That it does not depend on our performance. But that we know the person of Jesus Christ. That sounds like a much better righteousness to me. How about you? That the righteousness we receive in him is better it is better also the suffering we endure with him is better suffering good verse 10 that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death we all face sufferings don't we sometimes suffering comes in the form of a health crisis or a family crisis sometimes it comes in the form of persecution As we who believe in Christ feel rejected and ridiculed because the world looks at us and they say, you're foolish. Or sometimes it comes just as we respond to God's call to be selfless and self-giving, self-sacrificing, just like Christ himself has done for us. As Christians, we know we ought to deny ourselves and imitate Christ by picking up our own crosses and making sacrifices to do what God calls us to do. This is what it means to share in his sufferings. That we willfully choose to imitate Christ's selfless example as we make the sacrifice, as we do the hard thing, as we go to the difficult place, as we live selfless and self-sacrificing lives because we know that is what God would have us to do. And friends, that, those things aren't easy. They're hard. It's suffering in some way, especially as we look at the world and we don't see them making the same sacrifices we are. It's difficult. But we endure them because God wants us to because our suffering in him is so much better than our suffering without him. Why is that, though? Really, two reasons. First, because God sanctifies us through our suffering. This is what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 10, becoming like him in his death, that God uses the hard things in our life to make us more holy, more righteous, more self-giving, self sacrificing just as jesus exemplified perfect selflessness as he hung on the cross so god works through our own suffering to teach us the same selflessness and thus conform our character into the likeness of christ so that through suffering we become like him second the suffering we endure in christ is better because it is so much easier to endure suffering when we are in him than when we are apart from him So that when those times of suffering come, and they will come, it becomes much easier to endure life's pains and life's trials when you know that Christ is right there with you. 
To know that you are in a relationship with the wise and holy and good sovereign God of the universe. And that he is working to sustain you and help you through whatever trials you face. So that, for example, when Jessica and I gave birth to our second little, second daughter, little Leah, and she needed several weeks of intensive care in the hospital, and we were unable to really hold her for days. The situation was challenging, but all we could think of was trust him. Trust him in it. Endure through it. Trust in him. Or when a dear young couple in our church, Kent and Bridget Elo, Received news this week that against brain cancer has returned yet again. This time, even worse than before. What more can be said to them but trust him? Trust him. Because Christ is good. And no matter the outcome, he will help you endure this trial. He will sustain you through it. And he will give you peace and hope that only he can give. And he will use this suffering to sanctify you. Make you more like him. The suffering we endure when we are in him is better. It is better. Also the future we will have in him is better. Verse 11. Paul writes that by any means possible. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See someday the suffering in this life it will end. It will. We'll find ourselves face to face with the Lord. And at that point, a great future awaits those who are in Christ. A future free of suffering and sorrow and struggle. A future full of joy and unhindered worship of God. And this is the promise of the resurrection. That our suffering is not the end. That our death, no matter how terrible, it is not the end. That in Christ, we can have total confidence in a genuine resurrection. Not a shaky hope. Not an uncertain promise. Not wishful thinking or some kind of tenuous optimism. But total confidence in the life to come. Paul's point here is that a religious resume won't resurrect anyone. Resumes do you no good when you're dead. No matter how hard you work, you can't resurrect yourself. Only Christ has that power. And only when we're in a relationship with him can we personally experience that power as he brings us to new life, eternal life, abundant life. What a great future. What a tremendous future. What a reason to rejoice that the future we have in him is better. It is better Finally, the joy we experience in him is better. Of course, incredible joy awaits us in the resurrection. But until then, there is immense joy to be found in Christ here, right now. We experience joy as we are free from the burden of the law. And we no longer feel the need to assemble an impeccable religious resume. Because if you're a Christian, Christ's righteousness has already been imparted to you. What joy is there in that? It would be great joy. We also have that as we experience the privileges of being a Christian. Coming here, worshiping the Lord, experiencing fellowship with God's people. And engaging in fruitful ministry as we use our gifts to serve Him. It brings joy. But to really understand the full measure of Christian joy, I think we need to dig into what is meant here in this text by knowing Christ. That's the true heart of this matter, of this passage here, is that what it means to know Christ Twice Paul mentions that he wants to know Christ. And we have to ask, you know, what exactly does he mean by this? 
Let me explain first what knowing Christ is not. Knowing Christ is not just factual knowledge. I graduated from seminary in 2001. And let me tell you, if you want to gain lots of knowledge about God, go to seminary. You'll learn all kinds of theological paradigms and theological terms. And you'll read tons of books. And you'll learn what 100 different people throughout 2,000 years of church history thought about God. And if you do that, you'll have God like coming out of your ears as far as factual knowledge goes. But that's not the type of knowing that Paul's talking about here. I think Paul would say this, you know, you can, you can study about God. You can attend church. You can listen to sermons. You can go to a small group. You can do something we call devotions. You can attend seminary. You can learn all kinds of theological concepts. You can read, even memorize this book, but never really know God in the way that Paul is talking about here. Because all that knowledge, you know what? It's just one more line on a religious resume compared to really knowing Christ. So what does it really mean to know him? Paul is speaking about knowing Christ here. What he's describing in doing so is is the language of relational intimacy. Knowing Christ is is really relational intimacy. It involves an intimate, deep, personal relationship. Notice in verse 8, Paul does not say, Christ Jesus, the Lord, as if Christ is far away and distant. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is a personal, intimate association with Christ here. In addition, the Greek word translated knowing is really the type of knowledge that comes only through firsthand experience. It's knowledge that comes through relationships, through fully sensing and experiencing something that is often coupled with an emotion. It comes through encountering someone or something in a personal, in an intimate way. Let me illustrate this for you, and let me do it with this. This is a Milky Way candy bar. I like Milky Way candy bars. I think that they are a great candy bar. And you know what's interesting about Milky Way candy bars is I can tell you a lot about a Milky Way candy bar just by examining the wrapper, can I? I can tell you that this is composed of rich chocolate and creamy caramel and smooth nougat, whatever that is. And I can tell you that this is made by Master Foods USA, produced in Hackettstown, New Jersey. It tells me, studying the wrapper, exactly what's in it. So it's got milk chocolate, sugar, cocoa butter, skim milk, soy lectin, palm kernel oil, alkali, malted barley. Somehow it all works out, but... It's got all this weird stuff in there. I can tell you, the wrapper tells me all about, you know what? It tells me this has got 460 calories. Add this to your Thanksgiving meal. Fits right in. Lots of protein, cholesterol, all that kind of stuff. There's even a phone number here. If I want to learn more about it, I can call the phone number. I can study this wrapper and learn all about the Milky Way. But do I really know the Milky Way bar? By studying the wrapper. Of course not. What do I need to do? You know what I need. I need to open this thing up. <laughs> this is my third time preaching this. I'm getting a little hungry. So, <laughs> Open this thing up. And oh, look at that. And I can. Oh, I can smell that. That smells good. And I'm starting. Now I'm starting to really understand. Like this chocolate thing, right? And then if I really want. I can just go like this. Oh, look at that. 
it's just like the commercial, isn't it? You know, and there's this caramel here and oh, look at that in there. And there's that nugget stuff. And <laughs> this is good. But now do I still really know it? Now, what do, what do I have to do now? Now I have to just sink my, mm, um, sink my teeth. Oh, this is good. Let me tell you. It's going to be up here afterwards if you want it. But mm, now I'm starting to experience the whole Milky Way, aren't I? Mm, now I'm really getting a sense for mm, the caramel and the chocolate and what all this is like. And, but to do that, to really understand it, I, I had to really unwrap it, didn't I? I had to open it up and have a personal encounter with it. Not keep it all wrapped up on the shelf. Just by studying the wrapper. You know, I wonder how many people fail to unwrap their relationship with Jesus Christ. And experience him for all that he's worth. To fellowship with him as a person to be known, not an object to be studied. Instead, so many Christians, I think, just seek to learn about him. And they grow in their knowledge about him, but they never really grow in the full experience of him. What does that look like? Well, that looks like as experience of Christ, it happens as we encounter him through prayer. Through reading and meditating on God's word. By keeping our mind from drifting to the things of the world, but keeping it focused on Christ. By contemplating his glories. So that through that we grow in a heartfelt love and delight in him by not compartmentalizing our lives so that Jesus becomes just a little bit of a focus at one part of the day. But so that we live every moment of the day so that we have an awareness of his presence and an eagerness to listen to him and to hear him speaking to you. Really knowing Christ happens as we simply go about our days with him. It happens as we cultivate holy affection so that everything we do, whether it's driving a car or taking a shower or working at the office or on the job site or changing a diaper, it's done with a constant awareness and attentiveness towards Christ and an overriding spirit of joy because we understand and know who Christ is and what he has done for us. The value of this kind of personal devotion is powerfully illustrated In the story in Luke chapter 10 of Mary and Martha. This is a story where two women invite Jesus into their home. And what does Martha do? She runs around and trying to make sure everything is perfect. Serving Christ to the very best of her ability. This is what Luke writes. He said, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Notice Jesus now doesn't compliment her for all her labors. Instead, he praises Mary. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What was Mary doing that was so commendable? She just sat at the feet of the Lord and dwelt in his presence. She didn't run around trying to do all sorts of good deeds for him. She just wanted to be with him, to know him, to experience him by simply spending time in his presence. And I wonder how many of us here today might be uh, not Mary's, but Martha's. 
our lives so filled with Christian activity, as we run around attending this program or serving in this ministry, we never just have time just to be with him. And whether we intend to or not, we spend our hours fattening up our own religious resume while spiritually we're wasting away because we are so deeply starved for relational intimacy with him. Well, let this not be so, Bethel. Let it not be so. Let us as a church, as individuals, mine deep the riches and the joys that come from being one of his children. To experience the rich presence of Christ in our lives and to know firsthand the majesty and splendor and glory and holiness and grace of a good and awesome God. To really know Christ by having consistent, intimate Genuine experiences with him to experience him in ways you simply can't from the outside perspective, from the superficial wrapper of mere Christian activity. Because when you cultivate a relationship with Christ like this, then you begin to see how Paul can say that his religious performance is like filth. Because Jesus Christ is better. He is so much better, so much better than any work or any deed that I could ever do. The person of Jesus Christ is so much more wonderful, so much more exciting. And there is so much more joy to be found in knowing him than just by building our religious resume. And God forgive us for thinking that Christianity is all about religious performance. It's really about knowing a person. And all that stuff we do from going to church and listening to sermons, from doing good deeds and serving in ministry, from studying the Bible and doing quiet times and devotions, it's all means to an end. And the end is Jesus Christ. And if that religious stuff is not drawing you closer to personally really knowing him, and I got news for you, that stuff is filth compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord Now, don't misunderstand me. Our resumes still matter. Our works still matter. Our deeds are profoundly, eternally significant. And we must pursue them. We must pursue religious performance and good deeds. Paul does not say here that his religious performance is like filthy rubbish, period. Like how the NIV translates it, it's like rubbish compared To the surpassing greatness. There's a comparison being made here. What Paul is saying is that, hey, here's my deeds. They're like way down here, you know. But Christ, whoa, he is like way up here. And like the value of my deeds, eh, not so much. But Christ, he is wonderful and awesome. He's so much greater than this comparison. Still, it's interesting though, if we just took this passage in isolation, we might conclude that our deeds really don't matter that much. But we know this can't be the case. Not only does the entire Bible teach the importance of living a godly life, but Paul himself would even write later on in this letter how important it is to have righteous living. If you go over to chapter 4, you look at verse 8. This is what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So how we live our lives is of utmost importance. Our resumes are significant. But I also think it's true that our works will naturally and necessarily come if we really know God. And if we really know him, we will be compelled to live rightly and to serve him. 
Not because we feel guilt or obligation to do so, not, but because we're compelled out of our love for Christ. And this is what I think James 2 is referring to when it says, faith without works is dead. That because faith without works is really no faith at all. The two are inexorably linked. And so I'm not, this message this morning, discounting the importance of our deeds. We need to live holy and devout lives. And sometimes this requires great effort. Sometimes we must discipline ourselves to do what God requires of us. But when we strive to know Christ, as as we've been describing here today, then the performance God desires, it so often just comes naturally. As we're compelled to serve him because of the joy that we have in him. Not because of a sense of duty or drudgery. This means, by the way, that our lives are really good barometers for how well we truly know him. That if you really know and love Christ, your life will reflect that. It also means that if good deeds or righteous lifestyles lacking in your life, or if you feel ensnared by a certain sin you're just constantly struggling with, I wonder, is it possible that the reason for this is because you really don't love Christ enough? Is it possible that the spiritual struggle in your life might be less if you sought to know Christ better? Fill your mind with thoughts of him throughout the day to commune with him at all times, especially during those times of temptation. God is doing many, many wonderful things here at Bethel, and it's truly a privilege for me to be a part of this church. But I have to be honest with you. The Church leadership here senses sometimes that some within our congregation, that with, among them there is a bit of spiritual indifference to really know Christ. Some people here maybe really don't have the excitement or the passion for Christ as they ought, that they really don't prioritize the things of God in their life as much as they should, that the religious resumes maybe are not quite up to par as much as they could or should be. We sense this for a lot of reasons that we can evaluate. For example, do you know that the specific people who are here each weekend often fluctuates from week to week? That the group that's here this weekend will not necessarily be the same group that's here next weekend. And that causes us to wonder, you know, why do so many people attend our church only every other weekend? Is it because our services stink? Or is it because maybe some of these people aren't really that excited about Christ? Because they don't really know him enough to get excited about him. Maybe because they've become sermon proof. Is that you? Or as we counsel individuals over the issues in their life and we see a lack of conviction to really place Christ first in all areas of their life, we wonder, you know, do they really know Christ and how great he is? Because if if they did, maybe that wouldn't be such an issue. Is that you? Or as we encounter petty squabbles and hearts of bitterness, lack of forgiveness amongst some people, we wonder, have they ever really sought to know the depths to which Christ has forgiven them? I wonder, is that you? Or when we survey the many different events and things that we do here at our church, and doing so we realize that some of the things that are the best attended are the things that are just purely social in nature, and some of the things that have lackluster attendance are the things that have a real spiritual focus. And we wonder, do the people of Bethel, some of them more greatly value opportunities for social engagements rather than spiritual growth? Is that you? As we so often struggle to have people sign up to take adult education class, we wonder, you know, is that because our classes are lame? 
Is that because people really don't value getting to know Christ, learning more about him? Is that you? Or small group leaders get frustrated because the lack of commitment from their members. We wonder, is that just because the group isn't a good fit for them? Or is it maybe because there's some people that don't really value getting to know Christ through spiritually intentional relationships? Is that you? Or finally, when week after week, people show up late or barely on time for their ministry responsibility. Or when we look out and see that so many people are failing to use their gifts to serve Christ and build up God's church. We wonder, is that lack of involvement because their lives are just too busy with other things? Is it possible that the priorities of their lives are out of whack, perhaps because they've not fallen deeply enough in love with Christ? Is that you? And I wonder, what would our church look like if we all really knew Christ in the way we've been describing here this morning? What would your family be like? What would your marriage be like? What would your own heart be like? I'd be willing to bet that whatever spiritual indifference might be within us, that it would be utterly wiped away. Because as we got to know Jesus more, we would see how great and how wonderful and how glorious Christ is. And we would be totally compelled to live our lives in reckless abandon for him. We get the real righteousness, and then the resume would naturally follow. And when you truly don't seek to know him and experience the richness of a relationship with Christ, I think you deny yourself what is arguably the greatest joy in life. Remember, Paul begins our passage, brothers, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ. In the experience of knowing Christ, rejoice in it. But to find that joy, you often need to take a step. My question for you is, what will that step be for you today? Will you renew a commitment for personal times of prayer with him? Will you meditate more deeply on the words of his book? Maybe memorize some of them? Will you fill your mind more with thoughts of Christ and the glories and splendors of who he is? You strive to cultivate an awareness of him so that every moment of your day, you live with Jesus. What step do you need to take today? What do you need to do to further unwrap your relationship with Christ? What ex- in doing that, how will you better experience the riches and the joys that come from truly knowing him? Let us not miss out on this. Such a wonderful blessing and such an incredible motivation, driving force to have us live the life that God intends. May we truly seek to know him and mine deep the riches of who he is. We're going to sing a closing song now that encapsulates perfectly the content of this passage we've been looking at. But first, I just want us to just spend a silent moment standing. So let's stand.